first words of many books of the Bible are enormously significant, giving us a clue as readers to the author's purpose in writing. The book of Joshua, for example, that we studied very briefly over the last couple of weeks, begins with these words, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, showing us, as we've seen, that the book is going to focus on the transition of leadership between Moses, who wasn't going to enter the promised land, and Joshua, who would lead the nation of Israel in. And that sets our minds for that and for all that that entails. The Gospel of Matthew begins this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, setting the scene for Matthew's presentation of Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's messianic hopes. His reference to David and Abraham is no mistake. Just like the, the headline of a newspaper, the opening words of many of the books of the Bible set the theme. They set the tone for what's going to follow. And that's never more true, friends, than in the book of 1 Peter that we're going to begin studying today, where the three nouns that Peter uses to describe the recipients of this letter set the framework for all that we're going to see in the book. But before we get stuck into these first few verses, as we should always do when we come to the study of a new book, we need to first of all familiarize ourselves with the author and the context of the recipient, don't we? So that's what we're going to start with this morning. Let's start with the author, the Apostle Peter, a man that no doubt many of us are familiar with from the Gospel accounts. Peter was a Galilean, a fisherman by trade, one of the twelve called by Jesus to serve as an apostle. And if you notice there in verse 1, Peter actually identifies himself as such, as an apostle. Now, that's not Peter being a big head of him big noting himself. No, he reminds us of that so that we might read this letter through the lens of his experience. That we might remember that he was one of the disciples who heard Jesus' teaching, who saw Jesus' miracles, who walked alongside Jesus for three and a half years, reminding us that he was the most outspoken, if not the de facto leader of the disciples. That it was he who, led by the Holy Spirit, made that great declaration of Jesus' identity. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he declared. But we also remember that he was an impetuous man, often blurting out the wrong thing at the wrong time. It was he who came up with the grand idea to build tents so they could hang out with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. That only seconds after making that great declaration of Jesus' identity at Caesarea Philippi, he's rebuked as a mouthpiece of Satan 
for suggesting to Jesus that he shouldn't die on the cross. Not to mention, of course, perhaps most famously, that he would later deny even knowing Jesus three times, just hours after saying he'd rather die than do such a thing. But even that, that wasn't the end of Peter, of course, was it? He'd later be the very first disciple into the tomb after the resurrection. He was then reinstated by Jesus as an apostle. And they would go on to preach the first sermon of the church age at Pentecost. Peter's life and ministry was one of huge highs, but also extraordinary lows. I think that's one of the reasons why I really love Peter. I don't know about you, I can really identify with Peter. He's, he's real. He's just a normal guy who's got a big mouth and who says and does the wrong things, just like me. But yet, praise God, God used him, impulsive, foot-in-mouth Peter, as a fearless messenger of the gospel. He gives us all hope, doesn't he? That's Peter our author. Let's now take a look at the original recipients of the letter, who Peter was writing to. Peter spent the last few years of his life in Rome before being martyred under Emperor Nero in 64 AD. And it appears as though in the early 60s AD, so around about 35 to 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter, who was in Rome, heard about the situation of these believers. And so he decides to write them a letter. The churches to which he wrote were scattered throughout the northeast of the Roman Empire in modern-day Turkey. And the provinces that he mentions, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, they covered an enormous area. I worked it out this week. These provinces covered the area of New South Wales and South Australia combined. It was a huge area. And so for that reason, 1 Peter is it's more of a universal letter than a location-specific letter. Peter isn't writing to address the particular issues of a congregation, as the Apostle Paul often did. No, he's writing more broadly to the circumstances being faced by believers in that broad geographic region. And we can piece a little bit about these recipients through what Peter writes in the letter. In chapter 1, verse 18, he refers to them as being redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. And so for that reason, we know that the majority of the recipients of the letter were Gentiles. He, he wouldn't have written about God's chosen people, the recipients of his promises, in that way. So these people were mostly Gentiles, and they were clearly beginning to experience persecution. Now, whilst the most extreme, intense persecution of Christians didn't actually reach the outer edges of the empire until later in that first century. It was much more centralised towards Rome in that early period. It appears from this letter as though some sporadic local hostility and persecution had 
begun to emerge here in Asia Minor. These believers, they weren't yet being called to martyrdom as elsewhere, but they were experiencing mistreatment, ridicule, shame for being followers of Jesus. And you know, friends, in some ways, their experience is only a few steps beyond where we in the Australian church find ourselves at the moment. They were beginning to experience a bit of persecution. And so they needed to, to show a little bit of grit, a bit of fortitude for Jesus. And so Peter writes to these believers who were beginning to suffer. And rather than turning them inward, which is what so often happens when we begin to suffer, isn't it? We become very self-focused. No, instead, he points them outwards, beyond their suffering. As we're going to see today and next week with Colin in particular, Peter points them to a vision that is so much bigger than what they were going through, pointing them to their assurance in Christ, to God's sustaining grace, the sure hope to come, encouraging them to persevere even in the midst of growing opposition. But we're going to see throughout this letter, and this is particularly important for us, I think. Peter's going to provide some practical help about how we should live as believers, how we should live and work in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christ. And he starts this in the three key nouns he uses of these believers. Three key words he uses to remind them of their status. And this is what we're going to look at for the rest of our time together this morning. The first, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are the elect. Peter doesn't identify these believers scattered on the outer edge of the empire with reference to their race or ethnicity or language, but rather something much more significant, their status as God's elect. Let me read verse 1 again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I hope we see the full meaning of that now. Writing to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The word elect simply means chosen. The elect are God's chosen people. Verse 2 explains how this comes about. Who have been chosen, that's the same language as we saw in that psalm earlier, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. I don't know if you, if you noticed, as Tony read earlier, but I just love how Peter draws our attention here to the triune God's role in our salvation. The fact that all three members of the Godhead, God is three persons. Each of them are involved in our salvation. Did you see that there? We're chosen. 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God's the one who initiates our faith. We are dead in our sins. He is the one who chooses us, who, just like Israel, we're chosen according to his pleasure and will, not because of anything innately in us. And this, this foreknowledge that God has isn't simply just knowing future events. It's an active choice on his part. This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And here in 1 Peter, Peter reminds these believers that they, like all who come to faith in Christ, were elected by the providence and eternal appointment of God before the creation of the world to be adopted into his family, to receive salvation, to be set apart for his purposes. That is their status. That is their identity. In Jesus. Friends, I don't know how you find yourself this morning. Perhaps you had a, a fight with your significant other or a member of your family in the car on the way here. That can happen from time to time, can't it? And you were called stupid, useless, and that's really crushed your sense of worth this morning. Perhaps on Friday at work, you missed out on that promotion. You didn't receive the recognition that you felt that you deserved, and you're feeling a bit worthless. Perhaps something happened on the playground. We have a couple of kids in the room, and you were called a loser, hopeless, that you'd never amount to anything. Friends, those are all lies when it comes to our identity. Peter shows us this morning, if you have come to faith in Christ, who you are. You are elect, one of God's chosen people, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. What comfort that is. What assurance that is. What a joy that is to the praise of God's That's not the end of the chain, though, is it? Salvation doesn't end with being chosen. We see that here in 1 Peter. We're also changed people. You'll see there are three C's here. I'm a preacher. I can't, I can't help it. We're chosen people. We're also changed people through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us new hearts as we're born again and then transforms us into the ever-increasing likeness of Jesus. And he does that as cleansed people, those who have been sprinkled by his blood, those who have been redeemed, 
purchased by the spotless lamb who was sacrificed to atone for our sins. It's rich Old Testament imagery that Peter uses here, isn't it, to describe our status as believers. But his use of the Old Testament doesn't just end there. Take a look at the next word he uses to describe these believers. Exiles. Exiles. Do you remember your first overseas trip? Remember those days where you could go further than Goulburn? Well, like Goulburn's not a safe place to go at the moment either, is it? I can still remember my first trip overseas. It was back in 2003 to go see Irene's family over in Indonesia. And although it was 18 years ago, I can still remember walking down the air bridge at the airport and just being hit by the heat and by the unfamiliar smell. If you've ever travelled in, in Asia, you probably know what that's like. You walk down the air bridge and you're just hit by a surge of sensations that you've never felt before. That was only the first bit of culture shock, though. It was hard. It was hard living in a culture where I didn't speak or understand the language, where everyone ate food that had far too much chilli for my liking. And, it had all, and there were all kinds of unfamiliar cultural things as well. Like, who knew that meeting with someone in the morning meant you'd start to think about going out at about 12 o'clock? Whilst Irene's family, don't get me wrong, they were beautiful and warm and embraced me as part of the family. For the whole month we were there, I felt like a stranger. I was very aware that this wasn't home. That's what Peter wants us to think of with the word exiles there in verse 1. That, that same word was used in the first century to refer to temporary residents. People who stay in a place was measured in weeks or months, not long-term. Other Bibles translate, other translations translate that word as strangers or aliens. Someone who's just passing through a place. And you know what? That's exactly how the Christian recipients of this letter would have felt. They would have felt like strangers and aliens in the Roman Empire. What they believed was radically at odds with the culture. They didn't worship the Roman gods. They didn't participate in the sexual promiscuity of the era. They had what seemed like strange worship practices. And they even tried to win people over to their god and their way of life. They were seen as a threat to the stability and good order of the empire. And using the word exiles here, Peter connects the experience of these believers and us, living in the midst of a fallen and broken and unbelieving world with the exiled people of God in the Old Testament. Do you remember our series in Jeremiah last year? We saw how God allowed the Babylonians to capture the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, because of Judah's long-standing rebellion against God. That the temple was razed to the ground, the city destroyed, and thousands of exiles carried off to Babylon 
where they would spend 70 years away from the promised land. And by using this word, Peter connects our experience as believers in this world with the exiles from Jerusalem at that time. Just as they were exiled from their home in the promised land, we too are away from our true home, aren't we? Heaven. As Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. As believers in the Lord Jesus, we don't belong in this world. We're temporary residents. This world is not our permanent home. To that end, can I, can I say two things, brothers and sisters? First of all, no one likes to feel excluded. It's hard and painful to be on the outer, isn't it? Even if it's something as simple as being excluded from a playground game at lunchtime or a water cooler conversation at work. It's hard to be excluded. But you know what? It's okay. In fact, it's, it's God's grace at work in your life if you don't feel that you belong in this world. It's okay to look around at work and to feel a disconnect with your fellow employees because you're not on the same page. You're not seeking after the same things or have the same worldview as them. That's hard. Don't get me wrong. It's hard, but it's okay. Actually, it's a good thing. It's a blessing, brothers and sisters, to not fit in in this world. As A.W. Tozer once put it, a real Christian is an odd number anyway. He feels supreme love for one he has never seen talks every day to someone he cannot see. He expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order that he might be full, admits he is wrong, that he might be declared right, and goes down in order to get up. He is strongest when he is weakest, richest when he is poorest, and happiest when he feels worst. He dies so he can live, lives, or sorry, forsakes in order to have, and gives away so he can keep. He sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passes knowledge. End quote. Friends, it's good. It's God's grace at work in your life to be thought of as a weirdo because of Jesus. But also, let me say, if you're here today and you profess to be following Jesus and you look around and the truth is you don't really see any difference between yourself and others. If you feel totally home, totally at home in this world, you've settled down like this is your permanent residence. If you're pursuing the same objectives and goals as everyone at work and at uni. When you travel around the state on holidays and you find that you're exactly the same as those that you're traveling with, even though they don't know Jesus, it might be time to stop and do some self-examination. Because that's not good. That's not okay. As exiles in this world, friends, we should feel different. 
we march to the beat of a different drum as followers of Jesus. And there's a third word, a third noun that Peter uses here, which is also key to this letter. Scattered. Scattered. And it's another allusion for us back to Old Covenant Israel. The word that's translated scattered here, diaspora, is the same word that was used to describe the scattering of the northern kingdom of Israel at the hands of the Assyrians. You can read about that in 2 Kings 17 later. It was the same word used again to describe the scattering of the Jews under the Roman Empire. And Peter applies it here too to these believers, recognizing that they too are scattered as God's people amongst the nations. You know, as I was studying these first two verses this week, I'm convinced that it's God's grace that this word is there. Because I think the presence of this word guards us as believers against a very real danger that we face, a very real temptation that we face, particularly in a town and a church like ours. Whilst we're strangers and exiles in this world, we are to remain in this world. As Jesus prayed for us in John 17, don't worry about turning me there, I'm only going to read quickly. This is Jesus' words for us, his prayer for us. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They, speaking of us, are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus has sent us into this world. And so, whilst we might be aliens and strangers, we're not to alienate ourselves from this world or abandon it. We're not to to flee, to retreat into little holy huddles. We're not to bemoan what is wrong with this world and, and long for better days. We need to engage in this world, the world that we are sent into, How else will people know about Jesus otherwise? Friends, please see, whilst it's it's good to pray for missionaries who are overseas, and we do that faithfully here at NBC week by week, and that is a good thing. Please see, all of us are cross-cultural missionaries. You are a cross-cultural missionary. Citizens of another kingdom, scattered as missionaries for King Jesus. So we need to be intentional. We need to make sure that we and our kids have not yet Christian friends. We need to get involved in community activities. Join the squash club or the gardening club or the rotary club. We need to connect widely. We aren't to retreat into a Christian bubble but to seek to reform and transform this world with the hope of the gospel. We're going to see this throughout this book, perhaps more than any other book of the New Testament, actually. 
Peter shows us how to engage in this world as believers. When we bring those three words together, elect, God's chosen people, set apart before the creation of the world, exiles, this world is not our home, scattered, scattered amongst the nations to declare the glories of God. When we bring those three words together, there is a tension, isn't there? Our circumstances are so similar to Peter's first readers. Like us, like, like them, sorry. Jesus is our true king. We belong to God and our citizenship is in heaven. But yet, we live now in exile in a complex and confusing world, surrounded by increasingly hostile forces. But here in these first two verses, I think we see two keys for us to live in this tension. Firstly, we're to remember who we are and who we belong to. The very fact that these Gentiles, from a pagan background, be called elect, shows that something most significant, life-changing has happened in their life, doesn't it? Hard times, difficulty, suffering, those things can sometimes cause us to get identity amnesia, to forget who we are. And Peter reminds these believers and us right at the start who they are, the chosen children we need to remember who we are and who we belong to. And a second key, avoid the extremes. We've seen two errors that we can fall into today, to pull back and withdraw from society, or the other extreme, to become so enmeshed in our world that we lose our distinctiveness. Brothers and sisters, we're to engage in our world and live we're to engage as those who are scattered in this world, but yet live differently. Living lives that are so dominated by Jesus that people are compelled to ask us the reason for the hope that we have. That's what we're going to explore in this letter, what it looks like to live with hope as an elect exiles, to live as those whose lives are on mission for God, sharing the good news, and living for the glory of God, even if the culture becomes increasingly hostile. You know what, friends? I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but it's obvious that as Christians, we're increasingly seen as different in our society today, and not in a good way. Orthodox Christian beliefs aren't just rejected. They're seen as hate speech and are being legislated against. As Christians, in the next 10, 20 years, we're going to have to choose between obedience and comfort. The next few decades aren't going to be characterized by the apathy to the gospel that we've seen in the last 50. Now, they're going to be characterized by antagonism to the gospel. But you know what? That's okay. Because that's been the reality of God's people for much of history. 
in many ways, we're just going to be moving back to the circumstances of our brothers and sisters who have gone before. Friends, this one Peter is a letter for a church just like ours at a time just like ours. It's a letter we need to read, wrestle with, and believe. I'm excited. It's a great journey we're going to have together. I pray that you are too. Let's pray together now. Our Lord and our God, we are so humbled and so thankful that you, the creator of this universe, the all-powerful, all-sovereign God, before the creation of this world, that you chose us by your grace, nothing in us by your grace alone, to be holy, blameless in your sight. That you set us apart to receive salvation and to declare your glory to a watching world. Father, we are so undeserving and so thankful. Lord, it is our desire as your elect, as your chosen people who are living as exiles in this world, far from our true home in heaven, to live in a way that adorns the gospel, to live in such a way that people are compelled to ask us the reason for the hope that we have, to live lives of holiness, the fruit of the Spirit just overflowing day by day. Lord, as those who have been chosen, who are living as exiles, we recognise that we are equally a scattered people. That you have sent us out into this world to declare the good news of the gospel. The very fact that we here in Australia this morning are worshipping you is evidence that the gospel has gone to the four corners of the world. We are the ends of the earth. And Lord, we pray that you might use us here and elsewhere to declare the hope that is found in Jesus. Lord, we find it far too easy and far too comfortable to retreat into holy huddles, to bemoan the direction of our world, to long for better days, to retreat in fear. But Lord, that is not what you have called us to. Lord, give us courage, we pray, to engage in this world for your sake, that it might be redeemed and transformed by the hope of the gospel. And we pray all of this, that Jesus might be exalted here on earth, as his name is in heaven. Amen.